The following sermon, entitled The Strict Preaching of the Law, was preached on the morning of March 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, we will read the whole of the chapter. We do so in connection with Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Galatians chapter 5, this is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, Why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. 
We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and the many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 44. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 24 after the songs themselves. Lord's Day 44. What doth the tenth commandment require of us? That even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No, but even the holiest of men, even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. For a number of weeks as a congregation, we have been studying God's law, the Ten Commandments. That is, with the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide, we have been going through each of the Ten Commandments with a view to understanding them better with a view to seeing not only what they forbid, but what each of them requires. And along the way, we've considered the various ways in which the devil tempts us to commit sins against each of the commandments. We've considered the the bait that he holds out for us in order to allure us. And in order to equip us in our battle against sin, we've tried to show how the bait that the devil holds out in each case is ultimately worthless. And we've tried to show that there is indeed a hook there. There are consequences for sins against God's law. This this morning, we come to the end of God's law and a consideration of the Tenth Commandment. But at this point, it's worth stepping back and asking the question, why... Have we studied God's law in this way? What has been the purpose of going through each of the Ten Commandments? And what is more, maybe we need to ask the question, is this even appropriate? That we spend so much time studying the law of our God. Because after all, it is the Gospel that saves. It's the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. So, why then are we bothering with week after week after week of studying God's law? Is this even right that we have done this? Well, this Lord's Day answers that question. This Lord's Day treats the tenth and final commandment. And as we will see, this Lord's Day treats it recognizing that the tenth commandment is 
unique. It's distinct from the other nine in that the reality is that the Tenth Commandment is really the interpretive lens through which we view the other nine commandments. In that connection, the catechism takes the opportunity to step back and look at the law of God as a whole, and especially the preaching of God's law. And it explains not only that it's necessary, but why the purpose of having the law proclaimed. And the simple answer for why is that ultimately the law, the preaching of the law, serves the Gospel. The law drives us again and again to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might find our salvation in Him. And it's for that reason that we have the practice that we do of studying God's law from time to time. So this morning we want to look at this Lord's Day using as our theme the strict preaching of the law. We're getting that language from question 115, which asks, why then will God have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? So that's our theme. The strict preaching of the law. First, we'll look at the requirement of perfect, heartfelt obedience. Second, at the Christ-centered purpose for preaching this. And then third, the beginning and perfection of obedience. First, the requirement of perfect, heartfelt obedience. And that requirement comes out from the Tenth Commandment. That's what the Tenth Commandment ultimately has to teach us. At least that's the deeper significance of this Tenth Commandment. And I say it's the, the deeper significance because what's on the surface of the Tenth Commandment is obviously the forbidding of all sinful coveting. And I speak deliberately of a sinful coveting because the reality is that not all coveting is wrong or against God's law. Because the reality is that to covet something is merely to have a strong desire to possess something in order that you can enjoy that thing. And there is a good sense of the word of coveting. There are appropriate things that we should strongly desire to obtain. And we say this in the light of God's Word. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, the Spirit through Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts. That is, it's entirely appropriate to desire those gifts that we can then use in the service of the church of our Savior. More to the point though, as far as the good sense of the word coveting, ought we not to desire strongly our God and life with Him in and through Jesus Christ? The Scriptures certainly speak of such a desire after God. For example, in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so Panteth my soul after Thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is speaking of his longing for God. He does so again in Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. And all of us recognize this is a good desire. This strong, intense longing for God 
is a good and appropriate coveting. And that raises the question for us, is this what we desire? Is this what we want more than anything? To have Jehovah as our God. To enjoy life with Him in and through Christ. To fellowship with Him and commune with Him through prayer and devotions. Or, is our heart full of the sinful coveting? Because there is a sinful coveting that this commandment does indeed forbid. And the sinful coveting is again a a strong desire to possess something with a view to enjoying that thing, but now it's a strong desire to possess something apart from God or against God's will. And specifically, this sinful coveting that the 10th commandment forbids is really a, a sinful desire for what God has given to my neighbor. And that comes out in the very language of the commandment. The commandment is, Thou shalt not covet, it doesn't say a house, but thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet, it doesn't say a wife, but thy neighbor's wife. And that's the emphasis again and again and again. It's a, an idolatrous longing for what God has given to another that He has not given to me and evidently has no intention of giving to me. Such a desire is sinful. As one theologian put it, quote, you may not for one moment put an object that is in the possession of your neighbor before your mind to set your heart on it and long to possess it. End quote. But is that not what it's so often in our hearts? Not the good coveting after God and the desire to be with Him, but the longing for what God has given to my neighbor. The, the desire for all these earthly things, supposing that these things will make me happy. Such coveting is forbidden. Instead, we are to be content with what God has given to us. All of that is what's on the surface of the Tenth Commandment. But there's more to the Tenth Commandment. There's a deeper significance to the Tenth Commandment. That becomes evident when we look at the Tenth Commandment in light of the overall context and how it fits into God's law. Because as we just saw, the Tenth Commandment gives specific examples of things that we are not to covet. It mentioned the neighbor's house, the neighbor's wife. It goes on to talk about all the neighbor's possessions. But the reality is that God's law has really already touched on those things, hasn't it? It's done so back in the 7th and ninth Commandments. Because in the 7th Commandment, we saw that God not only forbids adultery, but He forgives even the sinful desire for another who is not your wife. Same thing in the ninth commandment. Yes, God forbids stealing, but when we looked at the ninth commandment, we saw that God forbids the, the sinful desire for the things that belong to my neighbor and any attempt to try to get those things. And Lord's Day 43 even specifically mentioned covetousness as a violation 
against the ninth commandment. And it's in light of this that because the seventh and ninth commandments themselves forbid this sinful desire that the tenth commandment almost seems superfluous. It almost seems redundant. A waste of a commandment. Why add this one if we already covered it in 7 and 9? Well, what that's meant to teach us is that there's more to the 10th commandment. There's a a deeper significance beneath what's on the surface. And the Heidelberg Catechism picks up on this. The Heidelberg Catechism is a faithful guide to the Scriptures and a summary of how we are to understand it. And that comes out in question and answer 113. 113, we read, what doth the 10th commandment require of us? This is what we read. But even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never arise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. And now when we read that, it almost gives us pause. It seems to have nothing to do with the Tenth Commandment. It says nothing about a sinful longing for the possessions of my neighbor, but it it talks from a very general point of view. That's because the Catechism recognizes the Tenth Commandment is meant to teach us about the whole of God's law. The Tenth Commandment is the lens through which we view the other nine. Scripture interprets Scripture, and it's the tenth that interprets one through nine. It teaches us about the law as a whole. Specifically, it teaches us what exactly God requires of us. It teaches us the extent of God's law. And to be very specific now, What the Tenth Commandment is teaching us is that God requires perfect obedience from the heart. Now you see why we've entitled the first point what we have. The requirement of perfect heartfelt obedience. Because the Tenth Commandment is teaching us, first of all, God requires absolute perfection. And that's clearly the the teaching of the Catechism. When it says what it does in question and answer 113, that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. It's saying we have to be perfect. And that's clearly the conclusion because when we come to Question 114. Notice the way the question put it. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? And that question logically follows because that's clearly the requirement. That requirement is in harmony with what Scripture itself teaches us about God's law. And we have that such instruction for us in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing the Heir of the Judaizers who were saying that one must be circumcised in order to be saved. That is, one must keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be right with God. And really, they were making our obedience a part of what makes us 
right, justified with our God. And it's over against that that Paul points out, look, if you are going to try to be right with God on the basis of your obedience, you can never be right with Him by just keeping one commandment or this commandment, but God requires perfect obedience to the the whole of His law. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says what he does in Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to be right with God by your law keeping, you have to keep God's law continuously at all times. And you have to keep the whole of God's law. That's what is being taught. And that's why we recognize that God's law requires more than just partial obedience. He requires absolute perfection. If we're ever going to be try to be right with Him on the basis of our obedience. So first, God's law requires absolute, absolutely perfect obedience. And that comes out from the Tenth Commandment. Second, the Tenth Commandment also teaches us that this obedience must come from the heart. That is, God requires more than a mere external, outward obedience. And that's important to add because if our understanding of the law is that God only requires the external, well, then we might be able to convince ourselves that at least theoretically, we could keep God's law. That notion is unbiblical because the Tenth Commandment makes clear that what, God, what Solomon said to his son in the book of Proverbs is ultimately what God says to us. My son, give me your heart. That's what the Tenth Commandment teaches us. For the Tenth Commandment is aimed at the Christians in their life. Certainly, the other nine do in fact address our, the Christians in our life, what goes on in our thoughts, in our heart. But at least in their form, the other nine are all outward, external. They, they forbid things that you can see. Sinful words, sinful deeds. Whereas the Tenth Commandment goes right to our hearts. It addresses our deepest thoughts, our deepest desires, our Everything that has to do with our internal life and it's teaching us. God not only requires absolutely perfect obedience, this must come from the heart. So that if some thought that's contrary to God's law enters into our minds, even if we dispel that thought right away, we've sinned. If some sinful desire enters into our hearts. Even if we never act on it. Even if that sinful desire never even manifests itself in our lives. Nevertheless, we've still broken God's commandments. Because even if those thoughts, those desires never show themselves in our outward life, they have still showed up 
in our hearts and in our minds, and thus they have appeared before our God. They've appeared before the One who searches the heart, who knows the thoughts of our minds, and thus they are sinful. That is the demand of God's law. And this demand is to be preached. That's clear from that's clearly implied from question and answer 115. Question 115 asks, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? And now the form of the question is why? What's the purpose? And we're going to come to that in the second point, but understand that the catechism is therefore assuming that this law, this requirement, is indeed to be preached. And it's important that we establish that that is biblical because there are some who would say, no, God's law is not to be preached. At least, it's not to be preached as law with all the exhortations, with all of the commandments. Well, why would anyone say that? They, those who would argue we need to do away with the law, at least the preaching of the law, point to the book of Galatians. And they say, well, the book of Galatians clearly teaches us we are no longer under the law. And indeed, the book of Galatians does teach that. For example, in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, we read how Jesus was made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. It becomes even clearer, for example, in verse 21 of chapter 4, Paul says to the Galatians, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And implied in that verse is, you are not under the law right now, but you seem to to want to be under it. Same thing in chapter 5, verse 18, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So it's true, we are no longer under the law, but how this is interpreted by some is that this means the law is not to be preached. At least not as law. That it no longer has any bearing upon our lives. And then they take language from Belgian Confession Article 25 and misapply it and say Christ abolished the law. The law as a whole. Some have gone so far as to say that when you hear the law, it's really the devil talking to you. That's the devil's voice when you hear the law. But all of that is based on a mistaken and false understanding of what the book of Galatians is teaching us. Emphatically, it's true. We are no longer under the law. But what that actually means is that we are no longer required to keep the law perfectly in order to be right with our God. In other words, we're no longer under the law in the sense of we have to live up to the law in order to be justified. As one Protestant Reformed theologian put it, quote, to be under the law in the biblical sense is to be obligated to obey the law perfectly for obtaining righteousness with God and to be subject to the curse of the law for failure to do so. End quote. 
That's the proper understanding of the law. And none of that is opposed to saying we must still live according to the law. That is, the law does still apply to us as Christians. We have the calling to live by it. And thus, over against those who would say no preaching of the law, at least not with all the exhortations and all the commandments, we see that the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of catechism is yes, God's law is to be preached. And that comes out when we look at Scripture. If we look back at the Old Testament, whatever happened to those tables of stone upon which God wrote His law, where did they end up? Inside of the Ark of the Covenant. What is that teaching us? That God's gracious covenant with us that's not based on our law-keeping, nevertheless, within that covenant, there's still a place for God's law. And that comes out here in the book of Galatians when we look at the book as a whole. For example, the Spirit through Paul brings up the whole giving of the law. And notice what, this, what we read about that in Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. In other words, law and promise are not somehow opposed to each other. You can only have one and not the other. Also comes out from the chapter that we read, chapter 5, verse, verses 13 and 14. We've been called unto liberty. We've been given this liberty. We don't have to keep the law in order to be right with God anymore. But what does the apostle add by way of caution? Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So in the very book that Paul is emphatically teaching us that it's not our obedience that makes us right with God, he's still taking the law and bringing it to bear upon the lives of those to whom he is speaking. What all of this has to teach us is that the law still has an important place for us as Christians. It's not the case that once we are saved, we have now graduated from the law. That we never again need the law in any way, shape, or form. But instead, it must still be brought to bear upon us. It must be preached. And preached strictly, that is, showing that it requires absolutely perfect obedience and that this must come from the heart. In congregation, this is the Reformed faith. Everything that's been said thus far. And that's evident from the very structure of the Heidelberg Catechism itself. Where did the authors put the treatment of the law. They mention it back in section 1 when they talked about the knowledge of our sin. But the exposition comes in the third section. The section on how we are to show our gratitude for the salvation that we have. And the very fact that it's included. That we have ten Lord's Days expounding the law and what it means and how it applies to our lives is teaching us. The law is still useful for us as God's people. 
This also comes out from the fact that we have it read. It's a part of our worship service. It's not the devil speaking to us when we hear God's law read to us each Sabbath morning. It's God Himself. So God's law sets before us the requirement of perfect heartfelt obedience. And this demand is to be preached. But that raises the question, why? What is the purpose for this? And that is the question that's asked more specifically in question and answer 115. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? And when we come to the answer, we will see that the, the purpose is ultimately a Christ-centered purpose. But before we come to the positive, we need to look at the negative and state very clearly that the purpose in preaching the law is not, and it must not be, to encourage legalism or works righteousness. And that too does need to be said because all throughout church history there have, there have been many who have wrongly preached God's law with this purpose in mind. This is how the Judaizers were preaching it. You must be circumcised. You must keep this aspect of God's law in order to be saved. And that same error has been prevalent all throughout the history of the church preaching the law in such a way that it's held out as this is how you earn God's favor. This is how you obtain God's blessings. Such a purpose is altogether unbiblical. Such a purpose is contrary to this book that we're drawing from this morning, the book of Galatians, which makes crystal clear to us that we are not justified, we're not made right with God by our keeping of the law. That's Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, And now he says it a third time, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And in fact, the Apostle Paul by inspiration goes on to put it even stronger. That if we look to our works in order to be right with God, if we think that's how we're going to get God's favor, then Christ died in vain. That's what he teaches in chapter 2, verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And what this means very concretely is that when I as minister preach God's law, when you as a congregation hear God's law, we must not fall into the wrong heretical thinking that the purpose in all this is that this is how I have to live in order to gain God's favor, in order to obtain His blessings. That's not the purpose. It cannot be because otherwise not one of us would ever be saved. Not one of us would ever receive a blessing from God. 
Because the reality is that no man can keep this law. And that's what the catechism has to teach us. In question and answer 114, we read, but can those who are, un- who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? And the answer is no. Not even the holiest of men. And But before we get to that, notice the question itself. The question itself is not, but can those who are unconverted to God perfectly keep this commandment? As though one who is unconverted could become right with God by his obedience. That's not the question. Because the reality is the unconverted do not even have the small beginning. There is no beginning whatsoever that the catechism speaks of. But neither is the question, do those who are converted to God perfectly keep this commandment? Has anyone who is converted to God perfectly keep this commandment? In other words, the catechism is not asking, has this ever happened? Does anyone in fact do this? Can you give me a real-life concrete example? But the question is really just the theoretical, can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Is it even possible? And the answer is no. Emphatically no. And that needs to be said over against the error of perfectionism. That's really what the catechism is addressing here in this question and answer. The notion that the regenerated child of God can reach a point, a stage in his life of sanctification, in his Christian walk, that he can go for long stretches of time without ever sinning. That he can even live the rest of his life without ever once again breaking God's commandments. Oh, to be sure, they would say, he might make a mistake here and there. He might have a an error in judgment, but he can still reach the point where he never commits a willful act of sin again. That view, that teaching of perfectionism, is altogether unbiblical. It's contrary to what we read, for example, in 1 John 1, verse 8. 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Not one of us who's been converted can keep God's law perfectly. And if you have any doubts, simply consider all that has gone on in your mind, in your heart, in your will, and in your affections from the time that you walk through the doors of the church building this morning. We do not even have to back all the way up until the, to the time that you woke up. The time that you walk through the doors of the church is sufficient. Can any of us honestly say there has not been one, even one, Sinful thought? No covetousness about what God has given to my neighbor and not given to me? No pride holding myself up above 
the others who I see walking into church with me? No mind wandering away from the lyrics that we were singing or away from the words that we were praying together. And even if we could say that, could we really say that this entire time I have been loving God with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That that's been my burning desire from the moment I walk through those doors. And we all recognize, no. Not even for 58 minutes, 68 minutes, have we been able to keep God's law perfectly. And it's for that very reason. At least that's a part of the reason why when the law is preached, the purpose must never be to encourage any sort of legalism or works righteousness thinking. Because if that's the purpose, then we are of all men most miserable. Then it's hopeless this morning. That means we have no assurance whatsoever, but only dread and terror as those who have not kept the law. And it's exactly because that is not the purpose, must not be the purpose, that the catechism has this burning question. Why then is the law to be preached? Question 115, notice the end. Since no man in this life can keep them with that understanding in view, the question is, why will let God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? And the answer, the purpose, is to show us our need for Christ. That's the answer given in answer 115. First, that, our, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed in the life to come. To summarize that long sentence, we can say that the catechism is teaching us here the purpose of preaching the law so strictly is to show us our need for Christ both in respect to our justification as well as our sanctification. The law reminds us, I need Christ in order to be justified. Because when I hear the law preached strictly, that God requires absolute perfect obedience and that all of it must come from the heart, not just outward, then I'm led to see I cannot keep it. Not I have not. I cannot even possibly keep it. There's no way. And if I must stand before God, on the basis of my own obedience, on the basis of my own law-keeping, the only thing I have coming to me is God's curse. His Word of wrath against sin. 
That is the law reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. The law brings us to our spiritual need knees. At least I trust that is the effect it has had upon you. Is it? As we've gone through the first nine commandments, as we've considered the tenth commandment this morning, has it brought us to our knees to say, I cannot save myself? The only hope is a mediator. That's how the law drives us to our Savior Jesus Christ. And it drives us to the One who became a curse for us. The law shows us I deserve God's curse, but the good news of the Gospel is the teaching of Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth from a tree. Now consider how utterly astounding this is, congregation. We are talking about the One in whom no fault could be found. We are talking about the One whom God had declared multiple times, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet He became, willingly became, a curse. That is, He took our sin, our guilt upon Himself so that from a legal point of view, there was no greater sinner than Jesus Christ. From a legal point of view. And because He had our sin upon Him, instead of hearing This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He heard, Cursed be you. As He was hung to that accursed tree on the hill of Golgotha, God said in essence to His Son, to hell with you, My Son. To hell you go. And that I'm going to take the agonies, the torments of hell, and pour them out upon you. That's what it means when it says He became a curse for us. But don't miss those words. For us. For you. For me. So that we might be redeemed from that curse. So that we might be delivered from that curse so that our sins are forgiven, so that there is no more wrath against us. The law drives us to Him. And it drives us to Him not only for the forgiveness of sins, it drives us to Him as the only one who's ever kept God's law perfectly. 
It drives us to Christ so that we might find our righteousness in Him. And indeed, He did live a life of perfect obedience. That is to say, Christ is the One about whom it can be said that not even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments ever arose in His heart. But that at all times He hated all sin with His whole heart and delighted in all righteousness. That's Christ. That's His obedience. Christ is the one, to use the language of Galatians 3, verse 10, who continued in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Christ is the one who served God perfectly and who did it from the heart. He's the one who coveted after God, who had a thirsting, a panting for His Father at all times. Christ is the one who never once had a thought arise into His mind that was contrary to God's law and then He had to dispel it. He never once had a sinful desire creep into His heart, but then had to say, no, I'm not going to act on it. But even His thoughts, even His desires, everything within His heart was perfect. It was pure. It was upright. And that is the obedience. That is the righteousness that is imputed to us by faith. That's our standing before God. You see, the way justification works is not that Christ goes back and lives our lives for us. He doesn't right all the wrongs all throughout our... That's not how it works. But we receive His obedience. That obedience that we've highlighted again and again and again as we've gone through God's law and we've seen how He perfectly kept every single one of them. Now take the whole of what we've talked about over the last ten weeks and embrace that. Trust Him for your righteousness. That's the basis, beloved, for our justification. And thus, we look to Christ and tie it all back to the overall point we're making. It's the law that reminds us of our need for Him. It's the law that shows us the utter folly of ever imagining I could be right with God by my own obedience. But not only does the law drive us to Christ for our justification, it drives us to Christ for our sanctification. And that's really the second half of answer 115. We've considered the first half, which reads, first, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, here's the second part, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace and of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God. What this is saying is the law drives us to Christ for our sanctification as well. Because when the law is preached strictly, when we see how high the bar really is, that it requires 
so much more than we could ever give, even as regenerated children of God, we're led to see I cannot keep the law of myself in my own strength, even as one who is regenerated, even as one who has the motive of gratitude that I now want to serve this God, I cannot do it. I need Christ. I need His grace. I need His Spirit. And that too comes out in the book of Galatians. When we read read chapter 5, after Paul sort of summarizes his main argument, after he talks about the liberty that we have, but then adds the warning, make sure you do not use this liberty to walk now in sin. Use not this liberty for the occasion of the flesh. What's the next thing he starts talking about? The Holy Spirit. Verse 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit who empowers us, who energizes us to keep God's commandments. That comes out even stronger in verses 22 and following where we read of the the fruit of the Spirit. And the idea of fruit of the Spirit is the, the Spirit's the one who works this in us. He's the one who even produces it in us. And what all this means is that it's not the case that, well, I need Christ for my justification, but then when I come to my sanctification, then I can say, well, I'll take it from here. No. Because the reality is that like justification, sanctification is also by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's the law that reminds us of all this. It's the law that reminds me I need Christ not only over here for my justification, I need Christ, His Spirit, His grace if I'm ever going to keep any of God's commandments. And all this is to say what we said in the introduction. Why? What's the purpose for the preaching of the law? The law ultimately serves the Gospel. But now exactly because Christ not only justifies us, He also sanctifies us. Exactly because we now have every reason to be thankful for this so great salvation that by His grace we do make a small beginning of obedience to His commandments. There's a beginning in this life and it will be perfected in the life to come. And that's what we read about in the Catechism. As God's people, there is a small beginning. That's question and answer 114. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No, but even the holiest of men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of disobedience. Yet so, with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Given a small beginning exactly because we're given new life. We've been made new creatures because the life of Christ has been infused and planted into our hearts. And more than that, that that life that we're given 
comes to express itself. That is, we, we live out of that life so that that seed that's planted sprouts and grows and begins to produce fruit. There is a small beginning. Now certainly we must avoid misunderstandings here too. We must avoid errors concerning the small beginning. An important one being thinking that it's ever something more than a small beginning. That I can get past just small beginning and maybe a medium beginning, a moderate beginning. No. Because we still have that old man of sin. We still have that part of us that's totally depraved. And that's what Galatians 5 talks about when it speaks of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. There's a battle going on within us as God's children. And exactly because we still have that flesh, that old man of sin, whatever beginning we make in a life of obedience is only ever so small. Another misunderstanding, another error we must avoid is supposing that this small beginning involves the improving of that old man of sin or the, the weakening of that old man of the sin to the point that he really doesn't have that much influence on us. This too can be a, a wrong way of thinking about it. That Well, if I'm constantly mortifying the old man, putting him down and putting him down and putting him down, well, does that not mean that by the end of my life, he's so weak, he's so frail, he really does not have that much strength left. He really has no way of influencing me. That too is a wrong way of thinking about it. And we can say that in light of biblical examples. Examples of men who for the most of their life they appear to be these very godly figures and it's at the end of their life that we see their sin coming out. Think of Noah and his drunkenness. Think of Solomon and his idolatry and tell those men that by the time you're an old man, the old man is improved. Old man in the sense of age, and then old man in the sense of sinful flesh is improved. Or that it's so weak, it's not really going to affect you anymore. That's not what the small beginning entails. Nor should we suppose that there's any value in trying to compare small beginning with small beginning. In other words, we should never try to stack up this new life of obedience between one child of God and another child of God and see whose beginning is smaller, whose is bigger. It's altogether foolish. Paul himself speaks of that in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about those who are trying to undermine his apostleship. He said about them, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We are not to compare ourselves to each other. Instead, we say with the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. One last misunderstanding to address regarding this small beginning 
is that it is emphatically not the reason why God ever blesses us. In other words, when we talk about the fact that we enjoy life with God, fellowship with Him, blessings from God, on the basis of Christ's work, by faith alone, in the way of obedience, we must never misunderstand that to be saying, well, then it's the obedience that is ultimately the explanation for why I have these blessings. That the the fluctuations, the variations in how close I feel to God, the fellowship that I have, that's ultimately explained by the, the walking in the way. No. The explanation is the variation, the fluctuations in our faith. The strength of our faith. Which is to say, it's not this small beginning that explains why we have these blessings from our God. But now all of that said, the overall point here that the catechism is teaching us is that there is a small beginning by God's grace through the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And that's again where the law of our God comes in. Because the law then comes to us as the rule for how to live a life of gratitude. It drives us to Christ for both our justification and our sanctification. But then as those who are justified, as those who are sanctified, it it sets before us the path and says, this is the way to walk upon. Out of thankfulness. Out of gratitude for your salvation. And now even though it's only a small beginning in this life, one day this work will be perfected. That's the very end of question answer 44. Till we arrive at the perfection proposed in a life to come. Christ will complete His sanctifying work. When we die, He will finally rid us of that old man. And thus there will be no more battle against sin. Instead, we will be made perfect. And that then is a part of our hope. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy law. Not because we imagine that we can look to Thy law for salvation, but we thank Thee for Thy law because it reminds us we must look to Christ for our salvation. And in that connection, we thank Thee for the good news of the Gospel. That in Christ there is indeed righteousness and holiness. Father, bless this Word to our hearts. Be with us in this day. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.